Hi, this is Pastor Tim, and I'm always encouraged to hear what God is doing in your life. Now, if you have a story or a testimony to share regarding a miracle, please let me know at story at citylifefw.org. That's story at citylifefw.org. Hey, I'm looking forward to hearing your personal story soon. Welcome to the City Life Podcast. We're all about making Jesus known. We pray these messages will help equip you to become a follower of Jesus, who is empowered to influence and shape culture. Enjoy the message. While you guys are giving, I want to just uh, just give you a little um, opener here before I move into my message. I... Uh, Today's message is a, is a unique one. It, it's a little different than the messages I typically do. Uh, and, and this is a message that you may want to share with somebody else um, via the, the podcast uh, to just to, just to get it out there to other people. There are a lot of questions about the reality of God. And um, a lot of believers don't really even know how to respond to that. So today I'm giving you a response something that you can learn yourself, but also that you can share with others. And I put a lot of research into this, a lot of time into this, and I, and I, I really hope that this will be enlightening to you, to your understanding. And this may be a message that you'll want to listen to a couple, two or three times as well. So I just encourage you to open your heart, and let's jump in. A lot of people say that God doesn't exist. A lot of people say that God isn't real. You see, the, the fundamentals of a godless world, it's actually ingrained into our culture. Uh, I was probably amongst the first generation to go through public school where we were, uh, where, where, where teaching about God was forbidden. And, uh, and so it's, it's been woven into our educational system. And, and even though most people actually do believe in the existence of God, the majority of Christian believers feel, uh, I would say, ill-equipped to explain why. I grew up in church. I knew, I knew in my heart that God was real. I just knew. I just, because I had experienced God. There's something about the experience that, 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 that just transforms everything. But how can I prove it? I mean, I was told that scientists and philosophers have have excluded God because God cannot exist. And uh, my arguments didn't seem to hold much weight to say, well, God is, and that's, that's all there is to it. So here's the question. How can we believe in Christianity if we don't even really know that God exists? I'm coming at this today from a broad perspective, um, I, I'm a theologian. Theology is my area of expertise. I mean, I'm not a philosopher, and I'm not a science, and I'm not posing as one today. But there's a lot that's in there, I think, that can open our eyes today. Because really, it, it, it all comes down to this question right here, which is a theology question. What do you believe? What, what do you believe? See, Christians believe we just believe even though we don't have all the evidence in front of us we do that's why it's called faith 
It's called faith for that reason. But see, our culture is a culture of doubt, and, and our culture is one of like bristling sarcasm, really against God and even the things of God. And, and I've addressed a lot of these issues of doubt uh, in my previous message, messages in this series uh, that, I've, that I've called Real Questions over the past really 18 months. I've, I've shared 10 messages in this series. But today I'm actually going to take on the core doubt, which is the question, how do I know God is real? Now, I, I want to start off by saying this, that it does all come back to that one word called faith. We simply believe. Now, that's the foundation of everything I'm saying today, so I want you to hear that. And, and even if we're wrong, we will have lived really good lives with purpose and with love and with passion. If we're right, we will have actually saved ourselves from a turn to give hell and actually brought a lot of other people into the grand eternity of our hope of heaven. That's what I want. Regardless of whether we're right or wrong, it's a win. You get that? It's a win either way. But I, therefore, choose to believe that God is real. So what do you, what do you believe? Really, what do you believe? Do you believe it? Well, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I would encourage you to open it up to the book of John, chapter number 3. John, chapter number 3. Get it to verse 16, and I want you to hold it there. You may want to take out some notes, jot a few things down, because I believe this is going to be invaluable to you today. See, philosophers and scientists, what they've done is they have searched uh, relentlessly for, for, the, for like one argument or one singular proof, an airtight proof that God exists. But unfortunately, they haven't been able to find one. But I believe if we look really, really close and if we intelligently, and this is, now listen here, I'm saying we have to intelligently review what the scientists and the philosophers are saying through their own lines of reasoning, I believe that you're going to see the fingerprints of God all over this world. Now, for today's message, I'm going to present some of those what I call fingerprints of God. And there are probably about 20 to 25 of them, but I've narrowed it down to what I would call five massive puzzle pieces. Five big, massive puzzle pieces that prove God exists, and it shows that God exists. Now, I know my critics are going to say, hey, well, I've heard, I, you know, even you might even be listening to this, and you might be a critic of mine, and you might hear one of these puzzle pieces and say, well, that doesn't prove God exists. Well, that's because you're looking for irrefutable, airtight proof. But my argument is that when you put all of these puzzle pieces together, they have what's called an accumulated weight of proof right in front of you that absolutely cannot be denied. Today I'm going to uh, quote a lot of scientists and philosophers. And these are not just some people that call themselves scientists or philosophers. These are renowned, respected ones. Um, because actually I believe that they make the best arguments in favor of the existence of God. I really do. Now, after their extensive searches, they all come back with unanswered questions, all of them. To start off with, I want to look at what existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says. 
because he comes to this uh, very empty conclusion regarding rights and purpose when God is removed from the equation. And this is where a lot of philosophers end up. And this is sad, but this is real. Here's the quote, it was true, I had always realized it. I didn't have any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. Philosophy without God leads to the conclusion of emptiness. But the five puzzle pieces I'm going to be sharing with you today declare something vastly different. Now, the first of these puzzle pieces is what I would call the mystery bang. Now, this is often referred to as the big bang. But, but, but I like calling it the mystery bang puzzle piece because it starts off with a rational question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, Francis Collins, he is the founder of the Human Genome Project. Look at what he has to say. He says, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang, 15 billion years ago. The universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. What that word means is it can't even be measured. Such a small place that there's, it's impossible to even measure it. This is a scientist. So that implies that before that, there was nothing. The scientist says, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to have been from outside of nature. I actually agree with this scientific conclusion. You see, everything in science is based upon something called contingency. Everything in this world is contingent. Those of you who are scientists, you understand that. That means that it all ha everything has a cause outside of itself. Therefore, the universe itself would have been dependent upon some type of outside cause. In other words... Someone or something had to make the Big Bang happen. But what was it? Who was it? Well, I believe that's God. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, that by faith, we understand in our minds that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. God spoke and it happened. That's what it means. God spoke and bang. Now, does this prove, does the mystery bang uh, prove that God exists? Well, no. But it's a huge clue because it has the fingerprints of God all over it. And the God of the Bible is, speaks into this. This is a massive puzzle piece that you can't ignore. Now, the next puzzle piece I want to share with you is what I call the fine-tuned universe. You see, in order for life to exist, there, have, there, there are these fundamental regularities. 
And, 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 and they're, the, they're, they're actually called the constants of physics, uh, which is like the speed of light, the gravitational constant. And all of these values fall into an extremely narrow range. The probability of all of this perfect calibration coming together in a narrow range with regularity by total chance, according to scientists, is so tiny as to be statistically negligible. I want you to listen to what Mr. Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, has to say. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, and they have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in one million, or in some cases, by one part in one million million, this person is much smarter than all of us. The universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets, no people. Yet the universe was actually knowing we were coming. You know, it, it's been said that, that it's as if there's this massive number of dials and they all had to be tuned within these extremely narrow limits and somehow they were. Well, we believe what the God of the Bible says, that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and He was with God from the beginning and through Him all things were made and without Him nothing was made that has been made. Stephen Hawking, he's uh, one of the world's most renowned theo uh, theoretical physicists. He says this, he says, the odds against the universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. He says, I think there are clearly religious implications. This is a scientist. He also says, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. See, the fine-tuned universe is probably one of the most weighty puzzle pieces to the existence of God as declared even by the scientists themselves. So does it really make sense to live for that um, infinitely remote chance that this is all an accident and we don't need God and that God doesn't exist. I'm just telling you guys, those are huge odds. And I don't want my eternity hinging on odds like that. Let's take a look at a third massive puzzle piece. I call it nature's regularity. You see, all scientific reasoning is based upon what's called the regularity of the laws of nature. For example, uh, water is going to boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, right? It did the same 1,000 years ago, and it will 1,000 years in the future. That's called the regularity of nature. Now, now, those concepts are accepted by all scientists, but a couple of really smart philosophers, David Hume and, and Bertrand Russell, very good secular philosophers, they're really deeply troubled by this fact um, because they say, how, how can it be that we don't even have the slightest idea of why nature's regularity is happening at all? And so they get really upset about this. In other words, they're saying science cannot prove 
the continued regularity of nature. Therefore, science has to take the regularity of nature by faith. There's actually a lot of faith built into science that it will be that way tomorrow. This is actually an undeniable evidence of the existence of God, which is nature's regularity, and it's another massive piece of the puzzle. See, we believe this, according to Paul, is that since the creation of the world's g- world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, what he's saying is these first three puzzle pieces that I've already shared with you, these pieces of creation, they remove the excuse of anyone that God is not real. Well, there's still another piece. This is a little different. This fourth piece is what I call artistic beauty. I I, I love art. Any art lovers out here? Yeah, I enjoy going to art museums and I like going to symphonies and concerts and musicals. I, 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 I relish experiencing beauty itself. I'll never forget the day that Rebecca found the Starry Night painting at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And she got to it and just began looking at it. She began crying. <laughs> and I didn't cry. But uh, I was enthralled at, at how impactful Artistic beauty really, really is. I mean, art actually fills you with hope, and it kind of mysteriously gives you the strength to carry on even today as arts were expressed during this first 30 minutes of our, of our service today. It just, you, you feel it, although you can't even really define what is moving you. Now, if there's no God, and if everything in the world is by random chance, and there's no actual purpose in your life for which you're made, then you're simply an accident yourself. So in this case, if that's the case, then what we call artistic beauty then really is nothing more than just some type of neurological hardwiring that causes us to respond to certain data. Yet at the same time, even secular people cannot escape the fact that in the presence of great art and great beauty, you cannot help but feel there is great meaning to life. You can't listen to Beethoven and not feel swept away with strong emotion. My dogs aren't. (laughs) You can't sit at the edge of the Grand Canyon drinking in its majesty or or gaze out the jet, uh, the, the window of a jet fascinated by the earth's sheer beauty or explore the tropical landscape of the Hawaiian islands or observe the fields of wheat in Kansas blowing in the wind without a deep sense of wonder and awe. It's as if nature itself is the canvas of God. It's his own work of art all around us. Artistic beauty. It's everywhere. So why does art, whether it's man-made or whether it's God-created, why does it capture our hearts? Because it shouldn't. It actually beckons us to know and to feel and to believe that there is more to life than this evolutionary existence and survival. You see, our our insatiable appetite for artistic beauty, it cannot be explained by science. It can't. Therefore, it's another massive puzzle piece giving evidence that God is there. And the fifth puzzle piece is what I will call innate knowledge. Listen to this. In our hearts, we have this innate knowledge that there is this reality called God. And if there's no God, 
and you simply believe that everyone just evolved from animals, then why would it be wrong to trample on someone else's rights? I mean, after all, isn't the foundation of evolution survival of the fittest? There are no rights. Let me ask you a question. Was it wrong for the Nazis to exterminate Jews and Christians and political rivals in concentration camps? According to evolution, no. So why is it wrong then for one race to trample on the rights of another? If there is no God, then there is no basis for any such arguments. And I realize that some people would say, well, we're just simply bigger-brained animals, and, and that's why. I mean, I remember even being in school listening to, watching videos of, 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 of a Jiminy Cricket singing, you are the human animal. And I thought, I'm not an animal, I'm a person. I, I went home and told mom, mom, the teachers were animals at school. But if you really, though, if we're nothing more than bigger-brained animals, then would you hold animals in the wild kingdom, would you hold them guilty of violating the rights of another animal if the stronger ones eat the weaker ones? Of course you wouldn't. You can't because you're a strict evolutionist. It has to happen. So if we're simply animals, why do we have this double standard about rights? And why do those who fight against the church scream about rights the most? It doesn't make sense. See, why, why are humans found guilty if we trample on the rights of the weak? In our own nation, we like to quote the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We know in ourselves. This comes from, we know it, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator, capital C, with certain unalienable rights. But these aren't man-made ideas, guys. And I think that people in our culture really do know unavoidably that there is a God, but they are repressing what they know. It's really common, especially in today's culture, to hear this, and we've even heard it from some of our men on the street interviews that says, well, no one should impose their moral views on other people because everyone has the right to discover truth for his or herself. You've all said that, Right? I mean, most, a lot of you have said that. You've all heard that, definitely, right? Well, see, here's the problem with that. The, this popular belief really leaves you, a person who might be saying that, with a series of very uncomfortable questions that are going to come back at you. Because aren't there people in the world who are doing things that you believe are wrong, things they should stop doing, no matter what they personally believe about it? About the maybe they even believe it, you know, about the correctness from uh, of their own behavior stemming from their personal truth. But if you do have a problem with what they're doing, and everyone does, <laughs> wouldn't this mean that you actually do believe there's some type of a moral standard, and that people should abide by this moral standard regardless of their individual convictions? See, why is it impossible in practice? for anyone to be a consistent moral relativist. Because every one of us have a powerful and unavoidable belief. But we don't just believe in moral values. We believe in something that, that, that's called moral obligation. Moral obligation basically is this. It's a belief that some things simply ought not to be done, 
regardless of what a person feels about it, regardless of what the rest of the community says. That's moral obligation. You see, people who scoff at the, at, the, uh, at, the, at the teaching that there's this transcendent moral order from God, they don't think that racial genocide is impractical or self-defeating. No, they claim that it's wrong. Well, where do they get that from? I mean, the Nazis may have claimed that concentration camps were not amoral at all. But, of course, we don't care what they thought, Right? We don't care if they sincerely felt they were doing a service to all of humanity. They should not have done it. It is morally wrong. In our society, especially today, we believe you. I know you. You believe in sacrificing time and emotion and money, especially for someone who is not of your tribe or your kind, and you know it's the right thing to do. Even people who aren't a part of church. It's our culture of causes. If you see a total stranger jump into the Trinity River, you're either going to jump in after him or you're going to feel really guilty for not doing so. Why? In fact, most people will feel the obligation to do so even if the person in the water is your enemy. But according to evolution, that trait could never have come down through the process of natural selection that I was taught in school and that you were taught in school because such people were, were less likely to survive and pass on their genes. Yet, for some strange reason, at this point in history, the moral value of human life is stronger in our world, in our society, than ever before. We seem to not be following the evolutionary process. See, as, as Christians, we believe that rights come from God, and we're all created in God's image, and that every human being is sacred, and we all have value. Yet, some philosophers claim that human rights, they're actually created by us because we write the laws. But honestly, what if the majority makes a decision that is not in the interest of granting human rights? See, if rights are nothing more than a majority rule creation, then there's nothing to appeal to when those rights are legislated out of existence. The great American philosopher Richard Dworkin, he concludes this. He says, if we want to defend individual rights, we must try to discover something beyond utility that argues for these rights. Well, I'll just tell you that something beyond utility is called God. It's called the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Famous German philosopher, Nietzsche, he made this very, very well-known statement. He says, if God is dead, any and all morality of love and human rights is baseless. If there is no God, there can be no reason to be kind, to be loving, or to work for peace. If there's no God, there's no way to say that one action is moral and another is not moral. All we can say is, well, I like this and I don't like that. So then who has the right to put their subjective, arbitrary, moral feelings into law? The majority? Well, what happens when the majority votes to exterminate the minority? It all falls apart, guys. Arthur Leff, 
famous Yale philosopher. He found himself at the same impasse. He couldn't figure it out. He's not a follower of God, but he says, you know, basically he's making a point that without God, uh, there are no moral foundations, yet at the same time we innately know that there are. So he makes this statement. He says, as, of, uh, as things are now, everything is up for grabs, but he says, but nevertheless, napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling each other is depraved, but there's no such thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? And he wraps this up by saying, God help us. Hey, wait, 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 wait. What is the secular law professor doing leading a prayer? God help us. Isn't that a prayer to the God he doesn't believe in? Hey, guys, today I've not tried to prove the existence of God. My goal is to show you that you already know God is there. You do. You can even feel him in this gathering. He's here now. To some degree, basically what I've been doing is I've been treating the non-existence of God as some type of an intellectual problem, but there's really much, much more to it than that. It not only makes all moral choices meaningless, but it takes away the meaningless of all, meaning of all life also. Because if there's no God, then in the whole span of human civilization, even if human civilization lasts a few million years, we are just a tiny brief spark in relation to oceans and oceans of dead time that preceded us and that would follow us. And there will be nobody around to remember any of it, whether you were loving or whether you were cruel. In the end, it will make no difference at all if there is no God. See, in your heart, even now you're saying, well, that can't be. So I encourage it for you is to recognize that you already know there's a God. Some of you might say, well, I wasn't even remotely impressed with your puzzle pieces, Pastor Tim, when they stood on their own. Well, that's fine. You don't have to be impressed. I'm not here to impress you. But when you put those five pieces uh, together, the mystery bang, the fine-tuned universe, nature's regularity, artistic beauty, and innate knowledge, it would take unimaginable faith to conclude there is no God. But it just takes a tiny bit of faith in your heart to say there is a God. It's, it's the tiniest bit of faith like a little seed that goes into your garden. The odds that all of this is wrong is actually the most remote gamble imaginable. So why would anyone gamble eternity on the extremely slight chance that everything I said today is wrong? Especially when you feel your heart pounding right now with passion. Because that's actually the voice of God whispering to you. See, God exists, and I know it. But I know it in my heart. He exists, and you know it in your heart, too. And in my opinion, it's simply, for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's like a fear. They're afraid of who God is and how he might interact with you or what they've heard about God or what someone told them about God at one point. And that actually believe that that's why so many people reject God. I, th I think it's also the fear of being totally vulnerable before God, before the creator of the universe, because what might God do to you because you know you're imperfect? But of course, we're Christians. We know we don't have to be afraid of that. 
Because Jesus came to set us free from the law of sin and death. And today, whether you believed in God prior to walking in here or whether you, you, you believe in him now, you know what? This is the truth. You must believe and we all must believe. And here it is. It was said earlier today. It says, John 3, 16. Look at it in your Bibles. For God so loved the world. That means all of creation, that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes, let's have faith, whoever believes in him, you're not going to perish, but you'll have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's false teaching. No, he sent him to save the world through him. And whoever believes, there it is, faith again, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed. He didn't have faith in the name of God's one and only Son, Jesus. It's overwhelmingly obvious. He's my choice. He's my God. He's our choice. He's our God. It all comes down to faith. Do you believe? I like there to be no movement in this room at this time, and I'd like for you just to close your eyes and focus internally, please. And maybe you're here today and you have never really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe today's message, you didn't necessarily need it even to convince you that there is God, but you know you need to make things right with God. Possibly you've drifted from your relationship with God. But if you want to know the Jesus that I talk about at this church and you want a new beginning, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. Because faith works this way. It's when we respond outwardly to that stirring that we're feeling inwardly. So if you want to know Jesus, I'm going to give you that chance to respond by simply lifting your hand. Just by lifting your hand. Know this, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much more than you can imagine, and he died for you so that you can have life and life to the full, and everything can change today. If you want to be included in my closing prayer, if you want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand right now at the count of three. Would you do that with me? One, two, three. I want to connect my faith with yours. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Who else? Thank you. You can put your hands down. I want everyone to look at me. If you lifted your hand, I want you, along with everyone else in this room, to stand to your feet because I want to pray with you. If you lifted your hand, my faith is connecting with you right now. And I want us to pray these words. Believers, I want you to pray these words with me as well. Come on, pray it from the bottom of your heart. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I believe you are the Son of God. Please forgive my sins. Today I give up my past, and I embrace the future that you have for me. I give my life to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's message. You know, City Life Church, we are all about developing followers of Jesus who influence and shape culture. And it's possible that you 
are even feeling a, a shift that is coming in your life or possibly deep down inside you feel called to something more and City Life might be a part of that future. Let me tell you, Launch Sunday is the big event that's coming up and it's happening on February 10th, 2019. And if you'd really like to be a part of what God is doing in downtown Fort Worth through City Life Church, I'm asking you to go and visit our website at citylifefw.org and click the launch button. Uh, you could also just come and visit one of our services because I, I really believe the future is bright and it's limitless in potential. I want you to hear my vision. I want you to be a part of what God is doing at City Life and come and chat with me personally after one of the services.